0: This is Schoolhouse, Equity in Education. Hey out there, welcome, welcome, welcome to Schoolhouse. I am Allison Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, and I am thrilled to be your host. This is the first episode of Schoolhouse after one of the most momentous and historic elections in recent memory, and I think we are all processing all of it. What the new administration will mean for our lives. And I especially have been thinking about what the new administration will mean for K-12 education and efforts to ensure that young people of color have access to high quality educational opportunities. Regardless, this campaign season and now post-election season has seen arguably some of the most dangerous rhetoric and actions that we have witnessed in a generation. Even in the midst of all of this, though, there were some important local wins for education, especially for access to preschool and early childhood education. My guest today is Dr. John Jackson, president and CEO of the Schott Foundation for Public Education. Dr. Jackson also has significant experience working in the federal government on education issues and has seen presidential transitions up close. He is here to help us make sense of where we find ourselves or at least help us to be asking the right questions. John, thank you for being on Schoolhouse.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So first, John, what is the Schott Foundation for Public Education?
1: The Schott Foundation for Public Education is a uh, public charity that is focused on resourcing campaigns across the country that are centered around providing more access to Educational policies and practices which increase the opportunity to learn for young people.
0: And who are the organizations that you support?
1: Many of the organizations that we support are organizations led by the people most impacted by the change or the lack thereof students, parents, teachers, at the local level, the grassroots level. Our goal is to elevate their voices, resource their campaigns, and not only with philanthropic dollars, but also with some of our institutional resources that will increase the likelihood that their campaigns will be successful, like our communication supports, our network building supports, as well as our policy supports.
0: Before we turn to talk about the national elections, let's just talk briefly about what happened at the local level. So according to a, a Slate article published the day after the elections, Cincinnati voters agreed to raise property taxes to increase education spending. $15 million of that will go to subsidize preschool for three- and four-year-olds living in poverty. In Dayton, voters agreed to raise income taxes and use those dollars to improve access to preschool, including to provide income-based tuition assistance for families living in poverty. After the election, John, you wrote of some of the state-level accomplishments that came out of the elections. What happened in Georgia and then in Massachusetts?
1: Well, I think what you saw in Georgia is voters voted to ensure that Their educational systems are not void of a democratic process. They voted against the state's desire to take over several of the school districts across the state. In Massachusetts, you saw voters push back an effort to increase the number of charter schools across the Commonwealth. I think voters are in a place where they would like to see the state make substantive investments that are going to impact all students, regardless of you know, what type of school they exist within, but mainly those students that exist within the public educational system. And to your point, we are seeing that education is more of a bipartisan issue. Many states pass bonds across the country to increase resources to their educational systems, as well as other things that impact the opportunity to learn for students, like offering fair wages. Uh, Many fair wage initiatives were successful paid family leave passed in New York and California. So we're very optimistic about some of the uh, changes that were put in place at the state and local level.
0: There has been this frame surrounding public education in this country that if we could just fix those kids and families who are broken, everything would be okay. And that feels to me like it's shifting, like with the winds that we saw in Massachusetts and Georgia and maybe even the the universal preschool victories in Ohio, maybe we're seeing a shift from that focus on children, young people, and their families as broken to instead focus on the systemic structures that are impeding progress and are barriers to real opportunity and life success. Do you get that feeling too?
1: I do I think voters are recognizing that you can't have a broken economic system, you can't have a broken healthcare system and effect and expect to have a highly effective educational system all exists within the same ecosystem. I think it's also important to um note that voters do recognize that The public educational system can work, and we have to invest in it so that it works for all students. And that's the major hurdle that many of the bond initiatives to increase resources and to increase taxes were designed to... do, to begin to create the types of supports so that regardless of where a student is located, regardless of what zip code the family lives within, that they will have the supports that will provide them a fair and substantive opportunity to learn.
0: When you think about young people sitting in classrooms with teachers, the work is local. It's happening in cities. And I wonder, what do you think? How is the work for access to high-quality public education, in fact, really about working at the local level in cities and communities.
1: I think that there are things that have to happen at the uh, federal and state level that sets the conditions and provide the supports where at the local level you can create a healthy living and learning climate so that students will have an opportunity to learn. So again, whether or not there are parents in a community that are making a livable wage that impacts the educational outcomes, whether or not the young people in the school have access to high-quality education that has an impact on educational outcomes. So there are things that at the federal and state level that have to be put in place and ensure to ensure a climate that is productive for parents and students. And then at the local level we have to ensure that the supports are aligned in such a way where they're more personalized, more student centered and the goal is to view every student as an individual opportunity and not to set a district-wide standard and then ridicule those who may not make that standard on the first try, Mm -hmm. but to support every student in the district so that they all can achieve high outcomes.
0: So, John, you know, it is mid-November 2016 now, and we are facing a new reality, which was always going to be the case. It was always going to be true that in mid-November 2016, we would be facing the reality of a new president, a new vice president, and new members of Congress. This campaign season and now post-election season have been marred by what I would say is the exposure of this nation's racial reality. And that reality has been really culminating over time and so this year 2016 doesn't sit out there on its own the country has origins in deprivation of land and culture and humanity from native peoples and deprivation of the same from african peoples and we sit now on that origin story in this moment of change i don't have to tell anybody here that we have a new president coming in (laughs) who wants, who wants
1: this country to become more dependent on fossil fuel, who is endangering, endangering the lives of our children and our grandchildren and future generations. What we have got to tell Mr. Trump and everybody else, we are
0: not going silently into the night. John, you are a scholar and a philanthropist, but you're also a father and a husband. And I wonder, what are you saying to your family and friends about this moment right now?
1: Well, I think I use it as an opportunity, particularly with my 13-year-old daughter, to sort of serve a history. How we view this election depends on the lens and frame by which we approach it. It cannot be said that racism or sexism didn't play a part in this election. The majority of whites voted for Trump. The majority of blacks, Hispanics, and Asians voted and leaned toward Hillary Clinton. Trump won men by one of the largest margins since 1972. And one um, poll that I read only 38% of those who supported Trump said that they have a lot or a fair amount of respect for women. Mm-hmm. That being said, Trump is not the only president that we have elected in the history of this country with some level of racist or sexist overtones. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that we recognize that, because as we survey our history, we will point to the policy decisions, but won't necessarily point to some of the underlining um, tones that other presidents, whether it be uh, John F. Kennedy, Mm -hmm. uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, or Bill Clinton, had as a part of their administration. And I think by doing that, we minimize the significance of these uh, tones in shaping policy. Mm -hmm. You know, while this is definitely with social media and 24-hour media cycle today, we see it more, but we should not be uh, so naive to believe that this is the first instance that we've elected a president with these types of views. Mm -hmm. And yet we still have overcome. And at the same time, labeling this election to be about racism and sexism is just too simple. Mm -hmm. It was about more than that. Because Trump fared well among female voters, at the same time we had four women who were elected in the U.S. Senate, three women of color, eight new women in the House, six women of color, the first Vietnamese to serve in Congress. Mm -hmm. Trump did about the same among white, non-Hispanic voters as Romney did. Mm Trump fared better among black and Latino voters than Romney. And Clinton didn't do as well among black and Latino voters as Obama did in 2012 or 2008. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was one indicator that has been very important in previous elections that we didn't pay attention to. And it's the question about the economy. Mm -hmm. This question on the eve of the election, this question around the economy, has determined the presidential election for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And on the eve of this election, Hillary Clinton was behind by four percentage points. So I don't think that everyone who voted for Trump is a racist Mm -hmm. or a sexist. And I don't think that everyone that voted for Hillary is an anti-racist or Mm anti-sexist. I believe that we have to begin to look at our frames, question them, and also expand our view Mm -hmm. to begin to better understand what are the factors that allowed individuals in 2008 to look beyond their racial bias Mm -hmm. and vote for Obama, and that allow those same individuals in 2016 to look beyond Trump's racist and sexist overtones Mm -hmm. and vote for him. What is that? We need to understand it and then we need to begin to address it.
0: It feels like the economy is is very much at the core of the answer to that question, and I I don't know the answer to that question of how did people look past what might have been driving them in this election to elect Barack Obama I think you're right that the economy is at the core of that. How are the economy and education married, and how should that marriage be framed for public consumption?
1: Well, I think that at the core of it, and I think Ben Jones said it best when he said that we looked at Trump's races and sexes overtones, and we view that as a disqualifier, Mm -hmm. while there are others who view that as distasteful. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, what they cared about is, I need a job. I have a family. I have to provide for my family. And this is the candidate that's laying out the agenda that impacts me the most in that respect. An agenda that was very arousing to non-college-educated individuals. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about individuals who likely, and because many of them were, were also older, individuals who were likely lived doing a part of where they were able to work in manufacturing industries and various factories that no longer exist. And they're looking for a path that will bring those jobs back. Mm-hmm. Now, that's going to be a tough a challenge, because many of those jobs are gone, and many of those jobs have also changed, mm-hmm. and the only way to prepare them for the new industries that has to be built is to provide the quality of education and training and credentials that will prepare them to enter these new industries, yeah. and that's where we really have to look at our educational system to. Ensure that beyond just testing, because Mm -hmm. when you you go to apply for most jobs, you're not going to take a test. We are providing the types of supports and tools that will allow for some level of mastery Mm -hmm. of a skill set that is both aligned with being a contributing member of your community and a contributing member of the labor force. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I think that many educational systems are beginning to think through. How do we make the shift from being top-down, driven, standards-based to being supports-based with ensuring that there are a set of skills that individuals can use in their everyday life and that will provide them the opportunity to learn and the opportunity to succeed?
0: So what does that look like? What is an example of a, a school environment that is well aware of the current economic environment such that we understand industry is changed completely? We know that the new industry is coding and technology and the digital space. What does it look like for a school to recognize that and to be truly preparing its students, its young people, for that reality and also providing the supports to students and their families and communities in collaboration with other service organizations and agencies of government.
1: If you listen to many of the people in the Rust Belt who voted a certain way, you will hear that many of them felt that they've been left out or pushed out of the American system. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to start in our educational systems by reversing this trend of pushing out our students. There has to be a value in saying that every individual's life is important, Mm -hmm. and we are going to set up educational systems that don't push students out, but they pull them in. And where there are challenges, where there is a need for additional help, we're going to provide the support, we're going to provide the training. So that when they are able to matriculate and move through the educational system, Mm -hmm. they are able to not only graduate from high school, so they're able to go and achieve some level of post-secondary attainment. Now, whether that be a college degree, whether that be a two-year degree or a certification or credential that's important to a specific labor industry, that's what we have to determine. But our educational systems have to be set up where a central goal is not meeting a test score, but attainment. Mm -hmm. Attainment of knowledge, attainment of a skill set on how to acquire knowledge, and attainment on real substantive credentials that provide real opportunities for all individuals.
0: Students all over the country have been walking out of their schools in demonstrations of peace and unity. You know, some have said that this is the democratic process at work. Some of them are protesting the election of Donald Trump to the presidency. Others are truly wanting to be in solidarity with one another and to demonstrate unity and what that means and what that must mean for the country. What do you think? Is it that they are engaging in the democratic process and that is the democratic process at work or is it wrong for them to protest the outcome of an election that was executed within the parameters of the laws and regulations that govern these things or is that even the right question to ask?
1: I think the protests are helpful for the purposes that you've outlined in um, showing some level of solidarity, showing some level of unity, a call for peace during a very a time that's challenging to a significant portion of our country, I question at times whether or not it's a part of the democratic process. And I question it from this perspective. Marching and protesting is a tool that can be used within the democratic process to achieve some level of power. But that tool has to also be coupled with a political engagement tool that's more linked to our democracy. Mm-hmm. So, marching and protesting without voting doesn't lead to a different political climate. In fact, if you look at many of the movements in the past, whether it was a part of a legislative strategy, whether it was a part of an electoral strategy, whether it was a part of a litigation strategy, a march where the two wrapped into an overall strategy. Mm-hmm. And my question here is, what is the overall strategy that the protest and marching is going to be connected to? Mm-hmm. It's clear that we missed an opportunity, when I say we, the larger community, missed an opportunity to engage a large African-American Latino community that is very engaged on issue to also provide an infrastructure and engage them in this presidential election in a meaningful way. And I say that because when you look at the turnout, number one, the turnout for the entire country is something that we should be concerned about. Mm -hmm. Anytime when you only have 58% of the population voting for their leader, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And just because you have an election in a democracy doesn't make it a democracy. So I think that that's something that we have to address. But even more, when we see people that have been historically disadvantaged, and you see that the turnout is very low in those spaces. It's something that those of us who are on the front lines of fighting for justice, we have to question how can we better connect that energy to again, an electoral strategy, a legislative strategy, a litigation strategy, or even if it's a civil disobedience strategy. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about, you know, Rosa Parks sitting down on the bus, but Rosa Parks sat down on the bus as a symbol of civil disobedience, but it was also connected to a bus boycott. And it was designed to impact the economics of the busing system in that community, and it was successful. It was also connected to a litigation strategy because at that time there was a lawsuit that was filed on behalf of uh, the citizens of Montgomery that went to the Supreme Court. So my question is, with these issues that we are challenged and upset about, how are we engaging in accessing our democratic process as a way to move uh, justice forward.
0: And one thought that I have is around the Movement for Black Lives, which has taken moments like the student protests, the walkouts happening in and around schools all over the country, and captured the sentiment of those protest moments in their policy platform, The Vision for Black Lives, and other folks are using those moments to say, we stand with you, young people, and here are policy reforms that we would advance in alliance with you. So the protest potentially could be out there as kind of just uh, standalone activities, but it does feel to me like there is some momentum that they are connecting to potentially. And I think, you know, it probably remains to be seen what will actually come. But do you feel that kind of energy and the groundswell happening and the use of protest and youth voice especially to really kind of build more energy for those, those policy reforms that have been put out there on the table?
1: Definitely. I think that there is a great deal of energy and needed energy that young people and movements are providing across the country. And I think that, for some, that's why the electoral results are so shocking, mm-hmm. because the question is, how can you, in a sea of movements across the country, mm-hmm. come up with a result that leaves the very same people who are flowing in this sea of rivers in a desert mm-hmm. and That's where I sort of step away from the work and begin to say, now, what haven't we intentionally connected so that the river flows, the result of this flows the types of justice that we need in the communities where we need it and not the types of policies and practices that may take us in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a great deal of potential energy. I am happy to see that there are policy platforms that have been developed. Mm -hmm. I think the next stage of that is asking and calling the question, who are the legislators at the federal level, at the state level? Who are the governors? Who are the mayors that are going to get behind those policy proposals so that we can start moving them? I don't think it's enough to just present the policy proposals. But again, it has to be a part of a democratic strategy where we are identifying the elected champions who we want to get behind to support our causes.
0: So, John, President Trump will be sworn into office on Friday, January 20th, and students will return to school on Monday, January 23rd. The federal government that we have known will not return to work that day, which means that school discipline cases and equitable access to education priorities in the federal government will shift. You have experience with presidential transitions. What do you anticipate will be different in a Trump administration for the everyday classroom experience of young people?
1: I think there are some immediate threats that we have to worry about. I mean, I know that there are a number of things that are swirling around the possibilities of what a Trump administration means, you know, but I think of it like my grandmother used to tell me about Culsar, you don't drink it all at once. You take a little, you deal with what you take, and then in the process, you will get better. All of this is not going to happen at once. Um, January 22nd, there won't be a wall that's up. Uh, January 22nd, there won't be this massive deportation that occurs. January 22nd, we won't necessarily be significantly in a different environment. Mm-hmm. What we do have to be concerned about, I would say, initially, are some of the more immediate threats. And those immediate threats, I think, are around many of the executive orders, the executive orders around immigration, the immediate threat to healthcare, and what does that mean for access to quality healthcare for students, which I said impacts their educational outcomes. I think that there is the immediate threat because we have to pass a budget of a weaker officer civil rights at the Department of Education, mm-hmm. which means that there's data that has been used to support advocacy campaigns and address racial disparities and gender disparities that exist in school districts that we may not have access to. I think that's one of the areas that in philanthropy we have to begin to think through how do we recreate that infrastructure. Um, Number one, how do we create support the types of advocacy campaigns where that data remains available? And number two, how do we create the type of infrastructure where organizations will still have access to the data? Mm -hmm. I think that it's very likely down the pipeline we will see an agenda that supports more privatizing types of initiatives in schools, whether that be vouchers or whether that be private charters or whether that be more charters, is yet to be seen, but it's very likely understanding who is at the transition table. I mean, many of those who are at the transition table were a part of the previous Bush administration, and so we have some idea of their leanings on some of these issues. And then I think long term there is a long term threat of perhaps losing the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. That threat I don't view as immediate because even if you get rid of the Department of Education, they would still have to identify who's gonna handle where are they sending the Title IX complaints, where are they sending uh the civil rights portion of the work that the Department of Education does, how then do you provide the grant support that the federal government provides to the state? Will that be block grants that each state's received directly every year? Who's going to administer that process? And then there's this thing called a student college loan system, where there's close to a trillion dollars in college debt and college loan that some institution is going to have to manage. Mm-hmm. So that's a much larger undertaking. But um, I think that we have to begin to map out What are some of the more immediate threats and what are the ways in which we can push back those immediate threats? And what are the um, opportunities that exist? And many of the opportunities you and I, we've outlined at the beginning, there are great opportunities at the state and local level where we see individuals who are willing to make decisions on education that are not necessarily along the party lines but are really um, looking, you know, at the value of the the issue. So I think that we have to take all of this in context and identify the threats, identify the opportunities, and be in a posture of strategizing on how to move things forward.
0: So you are well aware that the work that's happened for the past many years around school discipline reform, around the school-to-prison pipeline, Really started in, in the late 90s, early 2000s with the groups and organizations that are grantee partners of ours. And they have worked through a number of administrations and have kept their momentum going. They have changed policies at the school district level to the state level to the federal level. They are certainly who I have been looking to right now for inspiration and I feel very encouraged. That they are continuing to fight. They're continuing to do their work. It has been a relatively nice run for the past eight years. They've had an ally, even an ally that they've had to, to push and to grapple with and fight in some instances, but, but an ally in the work around school discipline uh, reform in the current administration. And they won't have that now and they recognize it and they're pushing forward. And so I do feel my positive outlook, I think, is uh, mostly because they are there and they are continuing to do the work and they they will regroup and they are regrouping. And so I wonder first about your optimism. What do you see as possible going forward and especially over the next four years? And how can the advocacy and organizing groups that we work with really maintain their momentum?
1: Well, I think that there may be an opportunity, and even as you, from a very tactical perspective, you think about the fact that there is some level of coalition building that's occurring between the right and the left around criminal justice reform, mm-hmm. specifically around sentencing. And I think part of our responsibility and those who care, are doing, and care about the school discipline and juvenile justice reform space is to convince that population that what happens in the schools relative to school discipline starts the track which leads students more often than not into these incarcerated spaces that both the right and the left are working to try to reduce. Mm -hmm. And if we are successful in doing that, you know, I think you're absolutely right. In the previous administration or the current administration, I think that they get it. Mm-hmm. Now we're in a posture where we have to convince a new administration that there's some political alignment. But I do think there is an opportunity there. And I mean, to to pull back and take a more broad look, if you look at the history of the fight for justice, it has never been a linear track. Mm-hmm. There has always been three steps up, one step back, two steps up, one step back. So while we had emancipation, around the corner was Jim Crow laws. Mm -hmm. While we had Brown versus the Board of Education, around the corner was the Bakke decision that she said you can't use race in Mm -hmm. higher education. While we've had opportunities to move legislation, like the Civil Rights Act, like the Voting Rights Act, we also had the Reagan administration, which sort of pushed back on that. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's important that for this generation and generations to come, we put this struggle in context, Mm -hmm. just like there are not many battles that you win, because when you win something, it's over. So we can never say that we totally won because the struggle continues. We can't say that we've lost Mm -hmm. because it has not happened yet. And my faith is where your faith is, is because we have these young people fighting, parents fighting, because we have individuals who are on the front line who are willing to resource these agendas, we are going to continue to progress and it's going to be our efforts over the next four years, like those efforts of Fannie Lou Hamer, Cesar Chavez, Dr. King. It's going to be our efforts during this season, which will determine how many steps back we take and how many steps forward. And that's where I'm hopeful because we're still in the game.
0: John Jackson, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I appreciate your work.
0: John Jackson is the president and CEO of the Schott Foundation for Public Education. John, how can people find you if they want to get more information about you and about the Schott Foundation?
1: They can go to www.schottfoundation.org. And on there, our website has all of the information on the different initiatives, the grantees that we uh, work with, and information on how to contact me.
0: Thanks to all of you for listening in and remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund's newsletter at cjsfund.org. Thank you all for listening and have a wonderful week.